Matthew chapter 4. In 2004, in the Ukraine election, there was a challenger to the government established forces that had been in play for a long period of time. And that challenger came by the name of a man called Viktor Yushchenko. And he stood up to the established government. And in their election, he ran. And he went against the entrenched party and it almost cost him his life. On the day of the election, there were some exit polls that were being taken. And they found that uh, Viktor Yushchenko should win, perhaps by a very sizable margin. But yet, when the reports that came from the state media of the official results, it was far different than what was being anticipated. Now, the non-state-run media was starting to run reports that there was some sort of election fraud that was taking place. But that evening, the state-run television made their great proclamation of who was the victor in this election. And this is what was reported to the people in the Ukraine. Ladies and gentlemen, we announce that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. And so that's what the people believed in Ukraine, except for the government had forgot about one small little detail. In the corner of that screen, they had provided the translation for those who were deaf. And there was this woman who had been raised by a family of parents that were both mute and deaf. And this woman took on the established government. And this is what she translated. She gave the right message and she translated this while the government with their anchor people announcing the great victory for their established government. She gave this message to the deaf people in Ukraine. Quote, I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They are lying. And I'm ashamed to translate these lies. Yushchenko is our president. Now, no one in the studio understood what was taking place. They thought they were broadcasting and, and this would be a done deal. But the deaf community started doing text messaging and passing messages through the Internet. And this actually gave others, once they, journalists that started to see the gall and the courage of this woman who was signing on TV to stand up and to do what was right. And eventually a country was revolutionized and it became known as the Orange Revolution. And a million people gathered in Kiev to protest these doctored results. And their protest was so effective that the government agreed to have another election. And when they did, they discovered that indeed Viktor Yushchenko was indeed going to be the president. You see, there was a voice, a woman signing that gave the right message and it gave clarity to a mass of people that were very confused. When Jesus makes his entrance into the earth and he actually begins his public ministry what Jesus does is he actually brings clarity and truth in the midst of the lies and the chaos of our culture. Just like that woman said, don't believe the big screen, they're lying. Jesus actually tells us life the way it really is. And when we see him entering into his public ministry at the end of Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, Jesus who's now set up camp in Capernaum in the heart of Galilee. In the midst of Herod's little dominion, 
Jesus then sets forth, having called certain ones to follow him. He begins, verse 23, going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. He's proclaiming that the king himself, this long awaited promised son of David, has arrived. He gives the Old Testament prophecies. And he is showing that he indeed is the fulfillment. In fact, not only is he proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but look at verse 23. He's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. There is no sickness, no grief that is too great for the power of Jesus to overcome. And verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Can't you imagine what was taking place when Jesus starts this ministry? He not only is proclaiming the truth about the kingdom, he's calling people to repent. Remember, we saw that from last time in verse 17 of chapter four, the summation of his message is repent. Be broken over your sin. Turn from your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is his message. He's going throughout the kingdom, and he's authenticating to all the people that indeed he's the Messiah, that his message is true, and he authenticates that message by actually doing these miracles, these miracles of healing people. And so what happens is, People are hearing this and they're going to bring their relatives, their loved ones. And they're coming not only throughout Jerusalem, throughout Israel, all the way far down in Jerusalem, but they're making their way from even some of the Gentile regions. And he actually notes that in verse 25, Matthew says large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis is this. Ten cities that's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a very heavily Gentile area in Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. People are flocking to Jesus. His miracles are not vague, but they're verifiable. And he is proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. And just imagine people who were demon possessed or they had epileptic seizures And by the hand of Jesus, he heals them and they are well. People that once were blind. Jesus touches their eyes. They can now see. People who are oppressed with great affliction. Difficulty of life. If you were paralyzed in a culture that didn't have wheelchairs, that meant you were dependent on people to carry you on pallets. Or you would just kind of lay on roadsides and you'd spend your life begging And Jesus would heal these people. And those who were once lame, they now start walking and they're praising God. And they have great thoughts of this Jesus. And people are speaking that this is the Messiah. And so after demonstrating his deity and his lordship, there is nothing that can stand in his way. Jesus begins the teaching of his disciples. Notice chapter five, verse one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened up his mouth and began to teach them. And so what Jesus is going to do, in fact, if you read the gospel of Matthew with this in mind, that he is teaching and training his disciples, it'll add a whole new dimension of understanding. The crowds are coming and flocking to him. And yes, Jesus is going to dress them. 
But a majority of his ministry is the training of the twelve. He is going to show them, teach them, equip them. He's going to confront them. He's going to challenge them. He's going to model for them life in the kingdom. And so begins his teaching ministry. You see, these people that are following Jesus, especially his disciples, they're responding to this message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, there has to be a brokenness over your sin. Not just to regret, like, ah, this is, I'm making my life a little bit miserable for myself and a few others, but truly a brokenness and humility of the fact that you have violated God's holiness. You're not walking in his ways. You're not treating God as God. And so these people are, are repentant, but they also are teachable. When Jesus said, follow me, they responded. In fact, they would leave anything, nets, boats, even their own father, if it kept them from following Jesus. And so Jesus, with these crowds that are gathering, and how could crowds not gather when people are being healed like this? He goes up on this mount, perhaps it was one of the hills by Capernaum, with the Sea of the Galilee off to the left side where people could see. And this, this large mountain and this hill would actually serve like an amphitheater and Jesus sits down. That's how rabbis taught. People in authority taught. They'd sit down. And so Jesus sits down and he begins to teach. And one of the things that we find is that when you and I really know Christ as Lord. When we know him as Lord, we can have a confident perspective when it comes to life. We can live in this world that is sending us signals like it's all about pride or all about your money or about what makes you happy or what you feel good. Or go follow the lusts of your flesh because after all, it's all about feeling good. Those are the signals the world sends to us. It's all about you. You're number one. Jesus steps in and says, let me tell you the truth of the matter. Like the woman that is giving the true message when the television's blurring another message to the people. Jesus is teaching us that we can live with a confident perspective. And we're going to enter into, beginning in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. Very famous sermon, Jesus' most famous sermon. And let me tell you that no mere man could ever give this message. Because this message that Jesus gives, not only is it absolutely profound, but it calls for an a true belief and faith in him. And I want to highlight a few key points. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with the law that God had given or the prophets. He says, I did not come to abolish, but I am going to be its fulfillment. I will fulfill it all. And then when Jesus ends his message, you, it, you can look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Look what Jesus says. No man could give this message unless you're God. You're the God man. Look what he says. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. He says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord is going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Who are you? He's God. And then look at verse the next verse. Verse 22. He says, many will say to me on that day, hey, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And he says, guess what? 
I will. I am the one who will do this. I'm God. I have the ability and the authority and the responsibility to do so. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who do not know me. You who are involved in religious activity, but you do not have an authentic, saving, genuine relationship with me and with the Father. I will be the one that will tell you, depart from me. This is a huge warning to folks that are nice and religious and that they can play the, the Christian badge and they know a few Bible verses, but they don't know the Savior. Jesus says, I'll be the one that will tell you, you will depart from me. And then he ends the message by saying, by giving this great final conclusion, saying, if you do not build your life on me and my words, your life is destined for destruction. It's me or it's nothing. No mere man could ever give this message. And so Jesus begins, and we'll go back to the beginning here in chapter 5 here, but with teaching the disciples of what life really looks like in him. Those who truly have life, those who know Christ as his Lord, and he is going to begin what is called the Beatitudes. It's from Latin, Beatus, uh, that has the idea of great happiness and joy. Now, the people in Jesus' time, when you would say blessed, they, they would have an understanding that this was a state of being of great privilege, of understanding rich resources that come from God. Uh, we hear the word blessed, and perhaps it may even be translated happy, but happiness is not really fully grabbed the essence of what it means to be blessed. See, when we're, when we're happy, we're happy because why? We have circumstances that are going our way. Okay, and so if someone walks in and says, hey, I've got pizzas for everybody, we're happy, right? Okay, yeah, we should have done that this morning, but we didn't. Okay, you'd be happy, but you wouldn't necessarily be blessed. You see, blessed to be blessed is a state of not only being in relationship with God, but experiencing the riches and the resources that come from that relationship. And so he is going to give these eight Beatitudes. He's going to be talking about this state of existence that exists for those who are truly his people. This is what Jesus is doing. He is telling you the facts of the matter. This is life the way it really is. He's not only giving you the traits that are valued among his people, but he's also going to tell you the truth about what life is really like for those who are in God's kingdom. He is calling you to put your faith in him and his facts, not the feelings, because some of the things that he references, like being poor in spirit or mourning, are are negative, sad feelings. And yet what he's telling you is realize the greatness of your state, your condition. You are a blessed person. Now, Jesus knows that his followers are going to face persecution. In fact, the heavy hand of Rome has already been oppressing the Jewish people. You got Roman garrisons and soldiers everywhere. If Rome or the Herods or the ruling people didn't like something, they'd just go ahead and kill you. And they might even torture you in the process. Persecution for the Christians was inevitable because they're going to hate Christ. They will persecute him and eventually kill him. His followers can expect no difference. It's going to happen. In fact, all who follow Christ are going to face persecution. Paul writes that in Second Timothy. And so what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his people for the road, for the journey. 
He's telling them the way life really is. The traits that are valued in his kingdom. He's giving the truth. And, you know, what he's doing is he's giving them hope. You see, we begin to die when we do not have hope. The Beatitudes, what Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, it gives us great hope that the world simply cannot offer. And so what he's going to do, beginning in verse 3, he's going to start talking about those who are blessed, those who are followers of his. And I want you to notice something. He begins by saying this. This is first one. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for there is there is the kingdom of heaven. You have it. You already have possessed the kingdom of heaven. And he actually ends that way. He actually says, if you look at verse 11, when people insult you and persecute you, they say all sort of bad things about you. You are blessed. Why? Because you have verse in verse 10, you already have the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying you already have it presently, but all the other beatitudes that he gives say that this is something that you will receive. There's a future tense about it. And that's the life as the Christian. We have already presently received benefits of being in the kingdom. But much of what we will be blessed with is in the future. It's coming. And so he's giving his people an eternal mindset. And Jesus fully intends that we, his people, actually look like what he's talking about. You see, you and I, are, we're going to be known by others, by how we live and what we value. And he wants us to value this. I had a just very interesting experience yesterday. I quick zipped into HEB. I had to pick up some groceries here. And, and uh, I don't spend a lot of time shopping. And, uh, but it was, it was just about lunchtime. And I do know that HEB has all these great samples. Okay? And so I'm like, sweet. And, and I, I like the samples. It's really great. And, and, and I try pretty much everything. There's not hardly anything I ever turn down. I want to try everything. And, and you can pretty much get lunch covered that way. And if you're looking for, like, hey, I need to feed the family... I, I'm just saying it works, and I've done things like that. So I'm, I'm making the rounds there and going through HEB, and mm, that's really good. I also found that if you tell them it's exceptional, really good, they might even give you a second, you know. And uh, so I'm, I'm making the rounds. I saw actually a few of you at the store there, and, and then I, I came to the deli place, and, and there was this, this lady, and she had her little setup there. I'd, I'd seen her before, and this time she had not only salami and all these cheeses, but she had four different types of salad out there. And uh, I'm like, oh, boy, well, and she goes, well, which, which one can I interest you? And I'm kind of thinking, well, let's try all four. I want to see how they are. And uh, I, I couldn't really make up my mind. I was hoping she'd just start putting out all those crackers and get my little spread going there. And I just start. And then she goes, well, I remember you. I know that you really like our chicken salad. And I went, what? You know, how do you know me? Who are how, how do you I, I'm not I'm not there that often, really? I I can't remember the last time I was there on a Saturday and she knows that I like the chickens. I go, how did you know that? She goes, well, I remember. And so I am known at H-E-B for loving the chicken salad there. Now, you know, you're known by others, by the things that are your preference and kind of how you live. And, and I want you to don't walk away going like, well, I guess Jesus wants us to be known for loving chicken salad. If you walk out going, that was today's message, you missed it. I am telling you, you're going to be known for certain things. And Jesus wants you to be known for these traits. And so he's going to tell us that you and I can live with a, in a, with a confident perspective in this life. And he tells us how to live. He says, blessed, verse 3, are you who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
He says, blessed are you when you have a brokenness about you over sin in your life, sin in our world, sin in the lives of other. You know, it says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to those who are broken hearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He says, although you are hurting and you are crying and you are in anguish, perhaps you suffered some serious casualties in your life because of your sin. If you were broken, he says, if you were poor in spirit, you need to know this for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Your brokenness brings you to God. It brings you to trust him. It's like I've made a huge mess of my life. Lord, I am trusting you. When you have that kind of approach to God, you need to know that the kingdom of heaven is already in your possession. You see what these beatitudes are? They're kind of like glasses or contacts that you put in your eyes. When they're there, you all of a sudden you can see things with great clarity that you couldn't without. And so he says, you need to know this. If you are truly broken over your sin, why, the reality is you are blessed beyond measure. The kingdom of heaven, notice he says, it's yours. You already have it. Then he goes on to this next one. He says, verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This has the idea that you've got a sorrow over your sin, that you are broken over it. It's crushed you. And until you're at a point where you are crushed over your sin, you're not at what we call repentance. I want to be crystal clear. There's a big difference between regret and repentance. Regret is, oh, man, I got caught. Oh, it's going to be painful. Wait till my kids find out about this. Or I have, ah, this is really making me look bad at the office or with the folks at church. That's regret. Everybody has regret. Repentance is God, you, you're just like, he's down here. Lord, be merciful to me. I, I am a sinful man. I have made it such a mess of this. I have so dis- destroyed people in my life. I've, I am grieved by what I've done. I, I am, I'm not worthy of being in your presence. I, I cling to Christ because that is... That is my only hope. And when you are broken, not only of your personal sin, that's what repentance looks like. You, I'm turning from it. I don't want it. I hate it. I hate what it's done to me. I hate what it's done to my family. I hate what it's done to your name. I hate that your son had to die for this. That's repentance. And when you develop a heart where you are actually broken over the sin in other people's life, you got to get past like, oh, man, what a sorry case over there. You know, and you're judging and you got this little attitude going. When you get to a point where you realize, Lord, this is grievous, grievous to you, grievous in this person's life. That's why they're running around maiming everybody with their words and their attitudes. It's sin. You see, when you see people that have rejected the Savior and they've got destruction of sin and their appalling condition, and they realize that there is, there is great doom for those who never truly repent. They face an eternity apart from God. When you start mourning over that kind of sin, look what he says, for they shall be comforted. God will bring comfort, but you have to mourn. You want God's comfort in your life. It comes when you cry out. And friends, we have people in our church 
They got serious heart issues. They got heartache. They got kids that are wayward. They got problems in their marriage. They're facing real difficulties. When you're mourning and crying out to God, God will give you comfort. And he gives comfort in the person of Jesus Christ. He's Lord. And just try me. Go ahead. Pour it out to him. Pour out your heart before him and cling to Christ. And he'll give comfort to you. In fact, do you know in the book of Revelation it says toward the end, that the Lord himself will wipe every tear from every eye. You will be comforted because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're one of his. Notice what else he says. Verse five, he says, blessed are the gentle or maybe your Bible translated it meek or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness is not weakness. It's Power under God's control. It's it's not like you're like a, some sort of human mouse, okay, and you're inflicted with an inferiority complex, okay, and you're I'm meek, okay. That's that's just being wimpy. Stop it, okay? That's not meekness. Meekness is power under God's control. Meek or humble is our gentle. This is what Jesus referred to. Jesus will see in Matthew eleven, it's gentle and humble at heart. Was he weak? Not hardly. He was the consummate man. He was not afraid of anything. He's the real deal. He'd endure pain, sacrifice, suffering. He'd die for his people. He's gentle. He's power under control. They would use the term for like horses that had been broken and now could follow the response of a master or rider. Um, we actually see this in our own culture. And uh, like in the South, Southern horse breeders, they used to say this. They had this phrase, the meekest horse wins the race. Maybe some of you had heard that before. And what that means is the horse that best responds to the training is the one that's going to win the race. That's what it means to be meek or humble. You are God's man and you were under his control. And he says this, blessed are the gentle, those who are under the hand of God, his, your power and your strength is under his control. You shall inherit the earth. And that is what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20. It speaks of a future kingdom. When Christ returns to this earth, he is, says in Revelation chapter 20, said six times, he's going to reign for a thousand years. It's, go, it's called the millennial kingdom. And when he reigns, it says in verse four, we who are his will reign with him. We literally will inherit the earth. Right now, we as Christians might be treated as the scum of the earth. And that is certainly the case for some of our brothers and sisters who live in, in countries where they are being persecuted. But one day they inherit the earth. You see, they are what, the, what Jesus says. You're blessed. You're immensely wealthy. You have great spiritual resources for you shall inherit the earth. He says in verse Six, blessed are those who gives this fourth beatitude, those who are who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. When you come to a point in your life where you truly want righteousness, justice, humility, honesty, integrity, you want it in your own life. You want it for the people in our church. You want it for our world. You are sick and tired of the mixed messages our culture sends and you want truth, righteousness, integrity. Jesus says, you know what? You're immensely blessed. You have great privilege because you know what? If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, one day you will be 
satisfied. One day the righteousness of Christ will reign in the hearts of every one of his people and sin will never be present and perfection will be and it will come. You've got my guarantee. Jesus is instilling hope in his people. Look at this next one in verse seven. He says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are you when your relationship with Jesus takes you to a point where you are kind and merciful and forgiving to those who have hurt you in your life. Jesus says, you will receive mercy. Now, he's not saying, well, if you're merciful or if you just do these things, that's how you become a Christian. No, you don't become a Christian by being merciful. You become a Christian by trusting Christ, who is merciful. And as a result, though, of trusting Christ, he who is merciful to you allows you to be merciful to others. And when he says you shall receive mercy, when you and I are merciful, he gives us mercy in our life. He is gracious to us. There is a strength that comes from growing and maturing in a relationship with Christ. And when you're merciful to others, it's like you receive these blessings now. It, you, it's like your heart's enlarged. You, you have strength. You have maturity. You have stability. You have health because God's work is being accomplished in your life. You're being merciful God gives you mercy. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, one day we're going to be evaluated for our works, how we lived in this life. He's not going to evaluate us as Christians like, well, did you measure up? Am I going to take you to the kingdom or not? No, that's already been settled at the cross with Jesus Christ. He is the one that allows us to make entrance into heaven because he's paid the penalty for sin. But one day... God is going to be merciful in his evaluation of how we lived our life. What kind of rewards we receive, especially if we are merciful to others. Who do you need to show mercy to today? Look at this next one he has. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is the sixth beatitude he gives. For they shall see God. When purity means something to you. When you desire to stay away from sin, to flee from temptation, to exercise discernment on the things that you're watching or the stuff that's coming through your eyes and into your head, into your heart. When you, like Jesus says, when you are pure in heart, you know what he says? He says, you shall see God. This is really interesting. The Jews were after what? External purity. They wanted to look nice and holy on the outside. But Jesus says, really, it's a heart issue. Blessed are you when you are pure in what? Pure in heart. Friends, anybody can put on a show. Anybody can make make someone make yourself look good for a season or in different settings. God's after your heart. Have you not sensed that? Do you not see that? He wants a heart that is purely his. And anything that is trying to distract or take away or cloud He wants that removed. And he says, if you're pure in heart, you are the ones who are going to see God. You'll see God because you'll see him in his word and the spirit. Don't you know that that when when you're supposed to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul, that when you engage in impurity, 
whether it be pornography, whether it be a man or a woman, you're reading things that you shouldn't be reading. You're watching things you shouldn't be doing. You're hanging out or doing things with people that you should not be doing. It has an effect on your heart and it prevents you from seeing and experiencing God as he would have you. That's why he says, blessed are you when you are pure in heart. For he says, you shall see God. And that motivation that we shall see our Savior face to face is a great impetus for purity in our life. He says, they will see me. Look at this next one, he says, the seventh beatitude. He said, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This, he's talking about people who try to bring about the restorative effects of peace in their relationships, in their relationships with others. Peace is not something that the military provides. It's not something that can be legislated. Peace is a heart issue. The Jews had this word in, in Hebrew, shalom. And it, was, it had far more to do with the absence of war, but it was really about completeness of entire being. They were whole. They were filled. They were satisfied. They were content. They were at peace. They had shalom with God and with others. When you and I are involved in helping people experiencing God's peace, when we see relationships that need to be reconciled and we will step into the dirty work and we're going to take the hits and all the mudslinging and stuff. And because we are very interested in people growing together, that peace would be established. Notice what Jesus says. You are tremendously blessed for you shall be called sons of God. They are going to see a likeness that you have to the father being reflected and represented in your life, and they'll identify you as truly God's children. You are tremendously blessed. By the way, God wants to use you as a peacemaker where he's got you. In your home, if it is a cold war zone, or you're fighting with your kids, it's time to address that. The traits and the values of the kingdom that were peacemakers. You got issues at work, on your team, at school with some of the kids. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then he says, look, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he, he just expands upon this because this really, this is where the rubber meets the road. When someone is going to oppose you, insult you, mock you, exclude you, hit you, throw stones at you, torture you, kill you because you identify with Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to know, yes, you are mourning now. Yes, it looks like Satan has his foot on your throat. But in the reality is you are far more blessed than you could ever imagine. That's why he says yours is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great from the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice because you it's showing that I'm more valuable to you than your own security and safety and happiness. He says, let me show you what life is really like. You are blessed beyond measure. You have great. You can have great joy, not because what you're enduring is happy. Because of the reality of my presence in you, 
The kingdom of heaven is yours. In fact, he identifies you are you're like the prophets that went before you. They also faced persecution. They also faced hardship. They also were killed. But they were advancing the kingdom and you are exactly in the same line. You're furthering the work of God and God oftentimes furthers his work through the persecution of his people. I was just reading last night about people in Indonesia and there's a big increase of the persecution of Christians by all these Muslims that are burning their churches and tearing these families apart. You read about them in North Korea, China. You read about and hear about these stories for even the people that we've adopted, these Banjara people in India, the hardships and the trials that they're facing. They need to know the reality is they are tremendously blessed. He says, when this happens to you, why you are blessed far beyond measure. You see, these people are being persecuted and they're facing difficulty, but the reality is that they are blessed. And friends, this is what Jesus wants us to know. You and I, we can live with a confident perspective. The world's telling us one message. You're a loser if you're following Jesus and someone's mad at you or, or excluding you from their group. You're, you're, you're the scum of the earth if you're taking heat because of the name of Jesus. Jesus says, huh? That may be on the big screen, but they're lying. The truth of the matter is, you're far more blessed than you ever realize because you have me. I'm the Lord of your life. And there's a lot more than this little dot. There's all of eternity. And what is coming is far greater than you could ever imagine. Hang in there and stay with me. You see, when we know Christ is our Lord, we can live with a confident perspective. And let me show you something else. We can live with a compelling purpose. Look at verse 13. He says, you need to know why I have left you on this earth. You who are my followers and my disciples, let me tell you, you are the salt of the earth. Now they would use salt and salt would actually like hinder corruption. They'd put it on meat. They'd pack meat with it so they could preserve it for a long period of time. Salt would create thirst. Salt would also actually serve to give flavor to food. Okay. So you ever buy one of those sodium free, real healthy deals? I did this actually last night for the kids. We bought all these really light sodium soups and like, it's bland. So I went and got salt and put that all in there. You know, tasted a lot better after that. Why? Because salt adds flavor. Guess what, friends? Jesus has left you here on this earth for this purpose. To preserve godliness, to add flavor and to build a hunger and a thirst for Christ. He uses his people and that's what he's here. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't have salt in heaven. He doesn't need salt in heaven. That's why he's got us down here on earth where it is messy and they need the flavor of Christ. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. But listen to this. Verse 13, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Now, sodium chloride actually can't actually lose its flavor. Okay, it can't be broken down. The problem is, is that salt would be mixed with other minerals like gypsum, which is white and flaky. And it kind of looks like salt when it's all crushed together. But let me assure you, there's a big difference between salt and gypsum. You get too much of those minerals and all that gypsum stuff mixed in there. And like, you put that on your food, you can try to preserve your meat. That won't work. It's not enough salt in there. And so what they'd have all this white stuff. And so what they did is they threw it on their path and hopefully it'd kill some weeds because that's all it was good for. And what Jesus is saying, listen, I've left you here with a compelling purpose. Your purpose 
is to represent me, to know me and to reflect my life and my love and my light to the people in the world. And he says, if you know, if it's if you lose your saltiness, if so much of the world's values, you're so clamoring to be popular with the world and you're adopting its lifestyle and you've got you. The world is setting your agenda with your family and your priorities, and it's all about your job. When you get to a point where you got so much of those minerals and all that gypsum just getting mixed up with your life, in a sense, you're making your life ineffective for the cause of Christ. You do not lose your salvation because of your sin, because Christ has settled that at the cross. But you can very well lose your effectiveness by letting all the things of this world crowd in crowd into your heart and all the things that you could be pursuing or should be pursuing. You leave them by the wayside. And what happens is we have all these sterilized Christians. We have folks that should be reflecting the light and the love of Christ, that when people engage in our life, they should hear about Jesus. They should see the values of the Beatitudes being reflected in our life. And we read the Beatitudes and they're like, I don't want to mourn. I don't want to be poor in spirit. Gentle? Me? No, I don't want to be gentle. I don't. Merciful, pure in heart. We, we can hardly relate to those beatitudes. When we're like that, we're kind of like the salt that's been mixed with the world. It's not worth a whole lot anymore. Of course, Jesus has a way of changing that. You hear his word. His spirit brings about conviction. You know, God is in the process of taking that which is dead and making alive. That which is broken and making it whole. That which has been contaminated and giving it fullness of life. He says, I've left you here for a purpose. You're to be my salt on the earth. And then he says, also, let me tell you this. I've left you here to be a light to the world. I've left you to be salt. I left you to be a light. Verse 14, you are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But what do you do? You put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And so what he's talking about is they're all very familiar. They didn't have electricity back then. You guys know that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had these like little oil lamps and they weren't they weren't much bigger than about like, yay. They fill it with this oil, had a little wick in it. They would light it and they'd go put that in a lampstand. They lived in real humble homes. You and I really can't relate. Little square little places there. They put that lamp on a lampstand and it would give light. And that's how they moved around, because it get dark, no electricity, so you have the lampstand. Jesus says, you know what? You're my light. Your life is to reflect mine. I have given you the sun. He abides in you. I live in you. I want you to engage this world so that they see me. That is your job. That is the compelling purpose in which I have left you. It's now, you know, it's kind of like you've heard this saying, well, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right. You're like, well, I try to live out my faith before people. And I'm like, they're not listening. They don't really care. And so I've stopped that. I, I stopped that in college or whatever. And I don't do that anymore. And I just try to meld in. I don't want to make waves. Well, let me tell you. Yeah, that's true. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you know what you can give them? You can give them salt. You see, when people taste the reality of Jesus Christ, when they see how he's so alive in your life, it is compelling and they want it. That is part of my testimony. When I saw Christ in others, man, they had something I absolutely didn't have. That's the way Jesus has set it up. 
He says, I want you to shine your light before men. You know, when it comes to like lights, think of it like a little flashlight. You don't have to be big to have a powerful influence. All you have to do is be on. Just live out the life who you really are in a natural, normal, don't be weird sort of deal sense. Just engage people. Love on them. You got people that are hurting? Why don't you go over and just be with them? I have, I've prayed with non-Christians before. I have never been turned down to say, hey, can I pray for you when they're having this difficulty? Just engage them. And what you do is they start seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. And they want the Savior. And that's how God has designed it. He wants his, the people of the world to see him. Now, you and I, friends, we truly live when we really know Jesus as Lord. When God, when the Lord Jesus Christ is everything to you, these are the values. These are our priorities. This is the perspective we start carrying in life. And when, when we grow in our relationship with Christ, we not only are willing to follow him, we do follow him. What happens is we become mature and complete. Richard Stearns just recently this, uh, wrote his, an account of when he went back to Haiti about a year after they had that serious earthquake. He was back in Port-au-Prince. He, he went and visited a church service. Now, they were meeting in this. They have all these people that still don't have homes. Okay? They have all these like makeshift tents. This church, they had these tarps that were all taped together with duct tape. And so he went into this church service that meets just in the midst of all these huddled masses that are just gathered. They don't have anything. Uh, sewer systems, they don't have clean water. Life is totally broken. So he enters into this church service, this, this tent, and he notices that on the front row there are these six amputees ranging from age six to age 60. And he looks at them and he sees them and they're, they're praising God with everything they have. And, you know, in our American mindset, we're like, Whoa, they don't have anything. And then he noticed this, the leader of this, and she was actually the choir leader. Her name is Demosi Lafine. She's a 32-year-old woman. She's a mother of two. She's got an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. When that earthquake happened, she got her right arm, her left leg crushed. And four days later, they had to amputate those limbs to save her life. And she's standing there on her prosthesis, and she's got her one hand that she's got left, and she's raising it and praise to God and leading the folks in the singing of the worship of God. This woman has nothing. She lost everything. She lost her limbs. She lost her home. She lost her job. But she did not lose that which gives life, who is Christ himself. And she was asked, what's going on? Why are you the way you are? And she believes that she survived this earthquake for two reasons, to raise her girls and to serve her Lord for a few more years. And so Richard Stearns, this president of World Vision, he writes, he says, you know, it makes no sense to me as an entitled American who grouses at the smallest inconveniences like a clogged drain or a slow Wi-Fi connection in my home. And yet here in this place, many people who have lost everything express nothing but praise. And he says, I find my own sense of charity for people like Demosi inadequate. They have so much more to offer me than I to them. I feel pity and sadness for them. For it is they who might better pity me for the shallowness of my walk with Christ. You see, these people that praise God in the midst of the storm, when we see it in our church, when we see it in ourselves, we've embraced the gospel. 
we embody the message. We are fulfilling his purpose and we are living with his perspective in this life. And we, we, tr- we truly live when we really know Christ as our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for Jesus, who is the light of the world. And Lord, I thank you that you spelled it out with such clarity. This you desire to be true in us. And so you tell us that we are blessed beyond measure. And so, Father, I pray that you give us the faith to believe. Give us eyes to see that which is truly true of us. That we're blessed beyond measure. Give us us a brokenness over sin. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. A desire to be peaceful, peacemakers. Lord, and when we we are hurt or being persecuted... Father, for our brothers and sisters who face it in a much serious, more serious degree than us, let us know that we can rejoice, not in the difficulty, but in the reality that we're yours and we're part of your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that you would instill in us a desire for holiness, that you would allow that which you've written to be lived out in our life. And we can do nothing apart from you, only through your son. So, Lord, glorify yourself through the body of believers of fellowship. May we bring you great joy. We will serve your purposes in this generation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.